Let's just bow our hearts as we turn again to God's word this morning. Father, we just thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have allowed us to have a copy of your word. Lord, we have the scriptures. We can see, Lord, your plan from beginning to end revealed in this incredible book. Father, we thank you for all that you have shown us, Lord, all you are continuing to reveal to us. And Father, help us to see, Lord, that in these days where the world is confused and looking for answers, that you have given us answers. You have given us, first and foremost, our salvation, the hope that we have, our eternity with you. But Lord, also you've given us, Lord, this revelation that we study now, Lord, to give us comfort and hope that we might know, Lord, what it is that we face in these days. And that, Lord, that there is no randomness in your plan. But the Lord, all of these things have been foreordained, that you would receive the glory and the honor. So Lord, speak to us now. Help us, Lord, to find great comfort and hope in these things. And Lord, just to see that you're a God who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. So Lord, encourage us, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've uh, been studying through the churches. We've uh, gone as far as uh, Thyatira, so from Ephesus to Smyrna. And you see these were kind of on a typical route uh, in the old uh, Roman Empire, these cities, these churches, uh, typically old postal routes by, by all accounts, uh, from Ephesus up to Smyrna, up the coast, a little bit further up inland into Pergamon, then right inland to Thyatira. Now this morning we're going to try and look, uh, God willing, at the last three, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. So that's where we're, we're heading first of all to Sardis. Now, <clears throat> just to remind you again that in the opening chapter, John gives us this divinely inspired outline to the book. So we can see that we've got these various sections. Firstly, chapter 1, the things that John has seen. Um, that's the first thing that John records, which he's told in verse 19, to write the things you have seen, then the things which are. Now, the things that were at the time that John is writing this, were the churches, the churches that existed at that time. So John now records for us those things, but then also the things which shall be hereafter. The word in the Greek is metatautos, after these things. And that's the, the, the rest of the book really from chapter 4 to 22. So we're dealing in, in a sense, the churches, or if you like, the church age. Because the rest of the things that we read really from chapter 4 onwards will deal with events that haven't yet taken place. They're prophetically uh, foreordained, they will take place, uh, but we haven't yet got there. But we're living right now in that period of chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is why these chapters for us are so significant. And again, as we've said, there's four levels of meaning. Clearly they were letters given to local churches. There was a real application there. Again, John was told in verse 11 of chapter 1 to write in the book and send it unto the seven churches. So each of the churches received their own personal letter. There's a personal uh, application of these letters as well, because we're told that he that has an ear to hear. So each one of us, if we have ears, this is for us. So right through the history of the church, these letters have had a relevance to everybody that would read them that is a believer that has an ear to hear, which again is that which is uh, opened by the Holy Spirit, effectively. Um, we also have a message to all churches. We see in Revelation 2.7, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And again, that applies in all of the, the letters. So these letters aren't just exclusive to one church. There's lessons that all churches of all time can learn from these letters. Again, you start to see the value of these things and how much we could learn. And then finally... There's a prophetic level of understanding for these seven letters, which shouldn't surprise us, because we're told in chapter 1 again that this book is a book of prophecy. 
So these are words of prophecy. So we shouldn't be surprised. And clearly, as we've seen already, there's a number of references that clearly take us beyond just that local application. Just as we see in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 28, where we have there uh, a description of Satan, this angelic being, Lucifer, um, who was arrayed in his glory, and we're told that he was in Eden. But the, the context of the chapter begins by looking at the king of Babylon. And yet, it goes on to clearly speak about something that's way beyond Babylon, because the king of Babylon was never in Eden. It looks at the power behind that, and so we see that the passage has a double reference, and that's something quite common in a number of prophetic scriptures. Well, just the same here also, that these prophetic uh, scriptures we're looking at deal with local churches, really existed, but also they lay out the history of the whole church, um, from the beginning of the church at the time of Pentecost, right through to the time of the rapture of the church, which we'll talk about this morning, and then also on to the time of the tribulation. So let's begin with the letter to the church of Sardis. These are the first six verses of chapter 3. Now, before we jump into the text, let me just give you a little bit of background, because what's interesting is the way that these real locations, these real places, and the churches that were there, were experiencing some interesting things that just so happen to map out things that happened historically later on. Now, again, we see God's design in all of this, that God has woven into history these things, that prior to the event, this church of Sardis was going through things, experiencing things, that later would be seen. Now, Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. It was one of the oldest and most important cities of Asia Minor, which is the area typically we think of as Turkey today. It was located inland, as we've already seen on the map, uh, but it was built on a small but elevated plateau which rises sharply above the Hermas Valley. Now, on all sides but one, uh, there were rock walls uh, that were pretty much smooth, nearly perpendicular. It made it very difficult to ascend up any other way than just this one smoother incline up to the top of the hill. Now, this is quite interesting because this led the people of Sardis to become quite complacent. Because they were at a time where, dating all the way back to to many, many years BC, but take back to 449 BC, the median soldiers of Cyrus, Cyrus you'll be familiar with, the the, uh, king, the Persian king who came and took Babylon in the days of Daniel, he scaled, his soldiers came and scaled the parapet and they took the city. Now, the people of Cyrus had just got so complacent that nobody could take their city that they just was so surprised by this. Now, again, in 214 BC, Antiochus the Great, another name from history you may have heard before, certainly um, the prophecies at the end of Daniel uh, deal and detail this individual, as he's referred to and mentioned a couple of times. Um, but Antiochus the Great captured Sardis. Uh, again, what happened was a Cretan um, individual had slipped over the, the walls uh, while the sentries were careless and had opened the doors and gates and then let them all in. And so all of this is quite interesting because what happens, it becomes that Sardis is given this reputation that it could be taken by a thief in the night. Historically, that's just a matter of record. Now, what's interesting is that couldn't apply more fittingly to the church historically that this church of Sardis seems to mirror or foretell. It's just so incredible as we will look in just a moment. Now, historians tell us that there was a real arrogance and superiority about the city. Archaeologists think that also, just as an aside, there was a first um, city that used coins of currency uh, that were made here. So they were quite interested in money and so on because of this. Now, from a prophetic perspective, the church 
of Sardis, by the way, Sardis means remnant, really depicts the age of the Reformation Church. Really from 1517 onwards up to the time of the Tribulation. Now, when we think of the the, uh, Reformation, we tend to think of it as being a really good time. And of course, there were some wonderful things that happened. Of course, it was a time when we reclaimed, the church reclaimed the whole doctrine of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's just by Jesus' grace, by God's grace. And that was the, the thing that really sparked the Reformation with Martin Luther and so on. And there were so many other good and godly people Of course, we're familiar with Henry VIII, not suggesting he was a godly man, um, but many of his advisors were. Um, We're familiar with um, Thomas Cromwell, one of his predecessors, uh, sorry, Oliver Cromwell we're familiar with. His predecessor, Thomas Cromwell, uh, his great-great-grandfather, was an aide to Henry VIII. He was a very godly man, and he did a lot to bring about the Church of England. Although Henry brought that in because of his own reasons, uh, Thomas Cromwell also was a very godly man working behind the scenes. Eventually he was put to death. But there's a lot of godly people around the time of the Reformation on all sides. Of course, it's through this period of time, again, 1611, that we find the Bible is finally given the official sanction by the king. Uh, And we end up with the the King James Version of the Bible. And just to clarify as well, the title authorised, which sometimes is is attributed to the King James, is because it was authorised by King James. Up until that time, Bibles have been fairly, uh, well, contraband really. It wasn't something that people were allowed to have unless it was something that the king had said. And finally we get to this stage. It was an incredible time for the church. And yet, there were many issues, many problems. This parallels the parable in Matthew Chapter 13, uh, verse 44 onwards of the hidden treasure. Uh, And we'll come back to that and look at the whys of that in just a moment. But interestingly, this isn't the church of which anything good is said in this letter in Revelation. In fact, we're told, if thou uh, shall not watch, if therefore thou shall not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shall not know what hour I come upon thee. Now you see historically the connection there. Why does that apply to the Reformation churches? Well, Let's go through the text and we'll look as we go on at these parallels that we see with the Reformation Church. So let's jump in, chapter 3, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis writes, These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Now that's quite a, an indictment coming from Jesus himself to this church. Now, historically, we don't know quite the application of this to the church at Sardis at that time. But it's interesting because prophetically, we do see this. Because the first thing you can draw from this is that Jesus reminds them of this image that John has seen in the first chapter. And the particular characteristic that's brought out is that Jesus has the seven spirits and he holds the seven stars. It's almost as if there's a reminder here that this church needs to be aware that it's Jesus who is holding the seven stars and not the other way round. You see, God, through Christ, is holding the church for his purposes. It's not that the church is using Christ for ours. And yet so often today... If we look at the churches that have come out of the Reformation, all the denominations that we have, so often it seems to be that they have their agenda and actually Christ is there for their purposes rather than them being used by him. So that's the first thing that seems to be there. It's kind of a big removal from the the early church, the church in the days of, of Pentecost and so on, the church we read about in the book of Acts. The next thing we're told here is that thou has a name. 
Well, if there's one thing that characterizes this period of history, it was the various names, the denominations, that word denomination is referring to the names, different names, that have come out of this period of history. We have so many different types and shades of churches, and they all set up slightly differently, and nearly all of them broke away from the establishment to get back to the word of God, and then very soon after, they end up going down their own little path and moving away from the word of God in some regards. Interestingly, Jesus says that this church has a name, has a reputation, that it's doing fine. But in Jesus' eyes, it's dead. Well, again, you think of all of those denominations that we have still existing today. And many of them, on the surface, may argue they're doing fine. Of course, we do see depleting numbers in the established church today. But overall, many of them would say they're doing fine. But in Jesus' eyes, are they really fine? Are they really serving him? Are they really focusing upon God's word? Or are they running after every wind of doctrine? See, the Church of the Reformation is characterized, as I said, by these denominations that resulted from it. J. Vernon McGee makes this comment. He said, Protestantism today, as a whole, has a name that it lives, but it's dead. Many Protestant churches today are just going through the form. They are building all the time, and people are coming, especially on Sunday mornings, but there are not many at the midweek service, when they really ought to come to hear the word of God. Thou has a name that thou livest and are dead. This is a frightful condemnation and is a picture of Protestantism today. You know, it's, it's true that there's a lot of people going to a lot of churches. But that's it. On Sunday mornings, that's their, their bit for the week. And get to the midweek prayer meeting, oh, they're too busy. There's something else that's more important to them. You know, or they get to dive in the Bible study. And again, there's something that's more important that they can't come or... You know, and I understand that everybody has commitments and responsibilities, but, you know, for a lot of churches, all they center around is just that little bit of time together. And actually, for many people that go to those churches, and you've met many of these people I know, they get into the week and you can't distinguish them from the people of the world. There's nothing different about their lives, nothing very often different about their vocabulary. And yet they would claim to be Christian. How many people do we see, even in the public eye, that claim to be Christian, and yet their lifestyle would simply contradict that? You see, they have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. And it's interesting, the the warning that they're given here. In verse 2, be watchful. Well, if there was ever a message that needs to be given to the Reformation churches, is this. You see, the Reformation churches did some good things. Again, as I said, they brought back this doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Saved by grace. Not by works, not by anything that we can do. And again, as I said, Martin Luther, that was really the touchstone of the Reformation. The Reformation that, you know, it wasn't by our efforts. But be watchful. You know, one of the big failings of the, the Reformation churches is... They never went far enough. The problem they'd inherited was the Roman Catholic Church, and we talked about this last time, had brought in so many allegorical interpretations of Scripture, so many things that they twisted, or they'd said, no, it doesn't mean this, it actually means this. or And particularly with regard to things like the book of Revelation and prophetic Scriptures. And so when the churches come out we have the church of england of course and we have the methodists and the baptists and lutherans and so many other different shades that have come out of the reformation none of them really addressed prophecy 
They didn't address the issue of the end times, the return of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because so many of the great speakers and teachers from that time are fantastic when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to the return of Christ, their theology is all over the place. And yet it's so clear in scripture when you read it. And so the message this church is given is, be watchful. Rick Warren, just one of the modern church leaders in America, has made it very clear that he doesn't think we should concern ourselves with what's ahead of us. You know, he actually says in his book, Purpose Driven Life, the prophecy is none of our concern. Really? Makes up a third of the Bible. Jesus continually says, be watchful. Jesus continually says that we should be aware of what's happening. See that you are not deceived and so on. Many, many times Jesus makes those comments. And why are we given prophetic scripture? So that we'll know what's going to happen. What was Israel's big failing? You could answer that way, a question in a number of ways, but one of the key things was that they did not understand the prophetic scriptures. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus holds them accountable for not knowing the prophecies of Daniel, which detailed to the day, the day that Messiah would come. And they missed it. And Jesus says, because you, you didn't know in this thy day, they end up blinded for 1900 years so far. The Church of England, some years ago, took a decision not to talk about end times, because in their view it was too divisive. I know this because a Church of England minister, who we used to know and get on very well with back in Deal, he's now uh, gone to be with the Lord in glory, but he said to us, he was at the meeting, he said that they talked about this and they said, do not talk about the end times. Do not talk about the book of Revelation. It's too divisive. Really? The word of God? Yes, the word of God is divisive, but only in a good way. You see, the word of God does divide. It divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. That which is of man and that which is of God. And that's exactly what we need to be doing. Another quote from J. Vernon McGee. He said, Protestantism as a whole has turned away from looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And they have built up these systems that teach that certain things must be fulfilled before he can come. My friend, it is... Tissue thin from where we are right now to the coming of Christ to his church. He could come the next moment or tomorrow. Don't say that I said he's coming tomorrow because I don't know. It may be a hundred years, but my friend, his imminent return is what we are to look for. Sardis didn't know when the enemy was coming and we don't know when Christ is coming. We have no way of knowing at all. In fact, sorry, in view of the fact that the rapture could take place at any moment, the church is to be alert. The date is not set. Nor even the period in which you will come. And the reason for that is that the church is to be constantly on the alert for his coming. As it says in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope. You see, anyone can make ready for a fixed hour, but you must always be ready for an unexpected hour. That's how Christ would have us. So this church is to be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. You see, all hope is not gone for this church. For the church at Sardis in the first going into the second century, it wasn't all over for them. There was the opportunity to, to get it right, strengthen the things that were reigned that are ready to die. But the reality was that things were dying. Partly their love for the Lord was dying. I know that was the, the challenge given to the church at Ephesus, but we know that many of the Reformation churches today so many things have died. 
implies there's a great effort to keep alive the things that are there. And that's what they're encouraged to do. You know, you think of a, a plant as it starts to grow, you know, a plant that's taken out of a, uh, you know, its natural environment. If you put a plant in a pot, you know, unless you care for it and maintain it, it's going to die. Well, it's the same for this church. It needs to constantly maintain and care for those things the Lord has given and particularly his word. This church uh, then told to, or they're told that, that God has not found their works perfect. The word perfect there simply means complete. And that's so true of the, the Reformation church that they started with great intentions of getting back to the word of God, getting back to the authority of scripture, but so quickly they moved away from that. They weren't complete. They didn't go and deal with things like Israel's place in God's plan. Most Reformation churches today do not believe that Israel are still part of God's plan. They believe in this idea called replacement theology, that God has now taken the church and given the church the blessings that were promised to Israel. As regards the curses, they never talk about that. But of course that's not what scripture tells us. Scripture is abundantly clear. So many verses that tell us that God has not finished with Israel. Israel are a vital part of God's plan to come. And we'll see more as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation. We're told, remember, (laughs) just bring to mind, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. How did this church receive and hear? It was through the word of God. How did the Reformation churches receive and hear? It was through the word of God. We're told to remember And then they're told, interestingly, to hold fast. That word appears, or that phrase appears seven times in the New Testament. I don't think that's a coincidence. We know seven is a number of completion. God wants us to hold fast, to hold on to these things. It's always a phrase that's attributed or dealt with in regard to doctrine. Hold fast the sound doctrine that you've been given, that you've had passed down to you. It's also... They must repent. Repentance is a gift of grace. We've talked about this recently, but repentance is something that God gives. That ability, that gift, is a working of his Holy Spirit once he indwells you, that you learn to repent continually. Sadly, we don't see a lot of that in the established churches. We don't see a brokenness and a humbleness. We see, just like Sardis was, almost an arrogance, this kind of confident, well, we can't be destroyed type of position. Jesus says, if thou therefore shall not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. Just as Sardis had been experienced on a number of occasions historically, so this church now is told what happened to them. And thou shalt not know what hour I come upon thee. Sardis, the church back then, or the, sorry, the city was known for complacency, Seemingly the church from these comments was the same and historically we know that the Reformation churches are no different than that. But they're also told that has a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now this is an interesting verse on its own because it's implying that within this melee of names that have come out of Sardis, come out of I believe the Reformation churches, there are some that have not defiled their garments. They haven't given in to compromise. They haven't allowed the word of God to be eroded. And they're given this promise that they shall walk with me in white. That promise, that, that white attire, we'll see more as we go through scripture, but particularly we see it in chapter 4, 5, and we also see it in Revelation 19. It's a clothing that's given to the saints. 
this special clothing that we are to be arrayed in. Speaking of our purity, and of course it's nothing to do with us, it's to do with Christ. Because he took upon himself our filthiness and clothed us with his righteousness. And in a dramatic way we see that as we are clothed in these white garments. So even some of these churches that have come out of this, we're told that there are some names there. There are some that have not given in. And I believe that's true in every denomination that you go out and look at. You will find true believers. You will find pockets of churches that are still true to God's word. Within the Anglican church, there are some great pastors and teachers and vicars, ministers, whatever title they give themselves. But there are some really godly men that love God's word. It's the same in the Methodist and the Baptist and in the Lutheran and Brethren. and Whichever group, whichever church you look at, there are some good and godly people. But sadly, the systems themselves are moving further and further away from God and from his word. Another comment of J. Vernon McGee, he speaks of the Reformation churches, the Protestant churches. He says they've certainly produced some great men of God. But he said that Romanism did the same, even during the Dark Ages. But that does not mean to commend the system. The system of Romanism and the system of the Protestants as they are revealed in the great denominations which have departed from the faith, to me, are the organizations which will eventually bring in the apostate church because they have departed from the great tenets and doctrines of the Christian faith. J. Vernon McGee's comments. He's now with the Lord in glory. But I think he's absolutely right. I think these churches will have a significant part to play in bringing about a one-world church. Now, it's no secret that the Roman Catholic Church is already way on that path and trying to bring together Muslims and Christians and everything else. But sadly, many Christian churches, so-called, are also trying to do the same thing. Then we're told, he that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment. There you go, that promise of white raiment. And I will not blot out his name of the book of life. I think that's really interesting, that verse there, or that part of the verse. And I will not blot out his name. What does it imply? It implies that names are in the book already. And the issue is whether your name will be blotted out or not. You see, we know already that nobody will go to hell on account of their sin. Because sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross. John tells us that Jesus was the payment in full, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So sin isn't the problem. It's accepting the solution. It's almost like having a a terminal disease. There's a cure. You see, if there was a cure for that terminal disease, nobody would die on account of the fact of the disease itself, but on the account of the fact that they refuse to take the cure that's there. And that's exactly how it is. And I think this verse indicates that Jesus will end up blotting out people's names, people who do not choose to put their trust in him. Because we're told that God is not willing that any should perish, for that all should come to salvation. That's what God wants. It means the people that end up in an eternity in hell away from God will do so of their own volition because they have rejected. People say, how could a God of love send people to hell? Wrong question. Why would people choose to go to hell when a God of love has given them an escape route? When a God of love has sent his only son to die in their place for their sin? Why would anybody choose hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose to go because they reject Jesus. There's a lovely comment there. Speaking of those who will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
How wonderful it will be when we're standing before the throne with all those angelic beings standing around us and we get to confess the name of Jesus. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. These things apply to all churches. Let's move on into the next church, the church at Philadelphia. Well, this is an interesting church. The name means brotherly love. Clovis Chappell said, were it my privilege to go back across the years and attend a service at one of these seven churches, I think, it should be cho- I, think I should choose the Church of Philadelphia. I think so too. I think this would have been a lovely church to be part of because there's no bad things said about this church, just positive things. It really was the Church of Brotherly Love. They've so allowed the Lord to permeate their lives that they take on his characteristics of love. Not just hearers of the word as James speaks of, but they were doers of the word. That's how we should be. Love should permeate our lives, and particularly as a fellowship of believers. And the area around Philadelphia was rich farmland. It was known for its harvest, its rich harvest of grapes each year. Fruit was expected of this church. This was mainly due to volcanic ash in the soil as a result. Now this is again another very interesting point and you start to see again God's design on history and these seven churches that Jesus specifically chose out of all the hundreds of churches that existed he chose for these reasons because they map out the history of the church there were frequent earthquakes around Philadelphia which meant that the people often had to pack up and leave that meant that they weren't all that attached to their surroundings and their possessions doesn't that speak of those that are getting ready to leave this earth to go to heaven with Jesus You know, we live in a world that is so turbulent. And we're told to be watchful. We're told to be looking for the coming of the Lord. We're told not to hold too tightly onto the things of this life, but to lay up our treasure in heaven. That's from where we are looking for our Savior, eagerly awaiting. Well, such a parallel with the people at Philadelphia, the church back in the day, and then what we see now in the world. Philadelphia was the youngest of these seven cities. It was uh, originally founded as an outpost for Hellenism. Now, let me just explain. That's the spread of the Greek language and culture to the surrounding nations. I think this is an interesting point as well. Because that simply words, the, the word Helen there is a Greek's word uh, that they've given to themselves. This area was known for reaching out, spreading out, this new language. Uh, again, I think that's so significant of this church, as we'll talk in a moment. This deals prophetically with the church age, the sixth church age, which really is referred to often by commentators as the faithful church. It takes us from the time of about 1750 AD up into the rapture of the church, as you'll see in just a moment. As I said, there's no bad thing said, and it parallels the parable in Matthew 13 of the pearl of great price. We'll mention that briefly in a moment as well. We're given this promise that because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation that shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. This church are given a promise that they can escape a time of trial that is coming upon the earth. Clearly a reference to the tribulation that's coming. And this church is told that they can escape from that. Now, I just want to take you through looking at these seven churches at this point, because you'll understand, I think, how these tie in together. Now, the church of Ephesus, they were given these promises. It seemed to dwindle. There is no 
significant church at Ephesus today. There's ruins of the old city, but that's all. The church at Smyrna are told that there'll be an end to these things. And the same for the church of Pergamos. But the church of Thyatira are given this warning that they could be thrown into tribulation. And the third church of Thyatira, seemingly representative of the Catholic church, is a church that is warned that tribulation awaits. The church of Sardis also have that same issue, that they're going to miss the coming of the Lord, that it will come like a thief in the night and they won't know. The church of Philadelphia, though, are promised that they will escape before these things come. Just as Jesus said in Luke's Gospel to the disciples, pray that you be found worthy to escape these things that will come to pass and to come stand before the Son of Man. And time and time again, Jesus makes these promises of coming and taking us to receive us to himself, that where he is there we may be also. First Thessalonians, again, very clear passage, speaking of the time when the Lord will come and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to be with them, meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And we're told to comfort each other with those things. This church are told that they're the church that will be taken out of the world. Of course, we'd all love to say that we're part of that church of Philadelphia. The church we'll go on and look at in just a moment, though, the church of Laodicea, again, not a, a good church. A church that is so full of compromise. And so we end up seeing those three church groups, in a sense. We have the Catholic church in its entirety. We have the, the Reformation churches. And we have the final church age, which I believe we're living in right now, will all end up going into judgment. They will be merged together. And Revelation 17 and 18 will deal with that and we'll talk more when we get there. And God will bring judgment upon them. So, to be aware, these churches all seem to be existing concurrently at the moment, all going at the same time. So let's look at this church then at... uh, Philadelphia. To the angel, the pastor of the church of Philadelphia, write, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that is the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Now, unlike the other letters where the description of Jesus comes from that we see in chapter 1, this description comes from Isaiah 22. And it's an interesting verse, we just read it, it says, And I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to the house of Judah, and the key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. It comes from Isaiah 22, verses 21 and 22. It's reference to Eliakim, who was the son of Hilkiah, the priest. He was made treasurer over all that Hezekiah had, King Hezekiah, over his old house. And I just think, you know, how fitting is it that, that Jesus has given this church of Philadelphia that authority. Been made treasurer, been given all of the wealth that God has to go out and to do that which they've been called to do. Just speaks of that authority and power. And there's a number of scriptures you can allude to, but John 14 Verse 12 says, Verily, verily, Jesus said, I say unto you, He that believes on me the works that I shall do, he shall do also. And greater works than these he shall do. Because I go to my Father. And by the way, when Jesus was talking about his works, if you look in the Gospel of John, Jesus was speaking of his witness, his testimony to God. And of course, because the Holy Spirit has come, we can do greater, both numerically, and also in terms of greater witness, because now the church spreads throughout the world. 
And we're told that we should be this witness. The book of Acts makes that very clear. John 14, 14 says, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So we've been given this key, in a sense, just as this verse alludes to here, verse 7. Verse 8 carries on, I know thy works. Again, every one of these letters starts with that. I know thy works. Jesus knows all things. We can't hide anything from him. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. That reminds us of the words that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 69. For a great door and effectual is open unto me. He says, and there are many adversaries. But this church is given a, a great door. No man can shut it. And that was a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. What a lovely thing to be said of this church. They have kept God's word. Only a little bit of strength. They're not a powerful church. They don't have a lot of wealth. They don't have a lot of money. Not like Sardis, again, one thing I didn't mention with Sardis, I mentioned with the fact that they, their money was minted, their coins and so on. But isn't that true of the, the established churches? I know the church, that was, um, many years ago when I was in a, a different profession, they wanted to buy some sound equipment for their church. And they were struggling to, to get together the, the few hundred pounds necessary to buy the equipment they needed. And in a, in a conversation, they mentioned that actually they've got some wonderful golden um, cups and, and so on. But they're locked away in a vault in Canterbury somewhere. Because they're too valuable, so they can't be insured. So nobody gets to see them. Nobody knows they exist. The church is struggling financially. They just wanted a few hundred pounds to buy some sound equipment so people could hear what was being said. I, that's a story that's so consistent through many, many churches. But anyway, back on track. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. What is, what is this referencing? Let's just read the rest of the verse. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. And Jesus speaking to this church of Philadelphia, and speaks of those who pretend they are Jews. Now, it could be a, a number of things, but certainly one of the answers to this, this question as to who this is referenced to is all those who adopt this idea of replacement theology. They put themselves in the position of being Jews. Jesus says, Behold, I'll make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Well, that is so true. of all. Now, there may have been other Jews. It may have been referencing... Some people who were literally Jews, Jews according to the flesh, but not so spiritually. And Jesus himself alludes, uh, sorry, John the Baptist alludes to that, about Jews that were coming to repent. And he speaks of the stones that were there, saying, I could raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So it may be not just a reference to the replacement of the theologians and those that would go down that route, but it could simply be the Jews at that time. But I think it has a more interesting application to those that, would say the church is the new Israel and those things. It's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. Verse 10 says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. Again, this church commended for keeping God's word. I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. The word there, hour, literally a time or a season, is what it's referring to. It's referring to the coming day of the Lord. The hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. And that's exactly what that time of judgment will be. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast. Hold that fast which thou hast, 
that no man can take thy crown. Now we've mentioned this a couple of times recently at Bible studies and so on, that we earn these crowns, and we'll talk a lot more about this in the next couple of weeks, that we're given these wonderful crowns that are rewards for our service and work. But we've got to hold fast. And by the way, there's a danger that you can lose that which you've worked for. John says that in Second John. He says, be careful that you don't lose the things you've worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. So even this church, this church at Philadelphia, a church that seemingly everything's going well, they may not be rich, they may not be wealthy, they may not be very strong, but they've held fast to God's word. And now they're told to hold fast to the things they have. Don't let anybody take your crown. Don't compromise. Don't give in. Verse 12 says, He that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. It's interesting, back in the temple in Jerusalem, there was two pillars. Yachan and Boaz were the names given to them. You know, and and each of those, they they represented strength. You know, there's this picture here that we'll be given this position. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Those pillars, by the way, in the temple didn't actually support the roof or support anything. They were just there on display. Made a pillar in the temple of my God, it shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. This is another reason why we're told, when we get later on in Revelation, that we're not to take the name of Antichrist. Where people that are in the tribulation, anybody that receives that name on their right hand or on their forehead, that's an abomination to God, because that place is reserved for God's name. God's going to write, or Jesus is going to write God's name upon us. will forever be marked as his and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write my name, sorry, write upon him my new name. We'll talk more about the New Jerusalem later in the study as we go through the book of Revelation in weeks to come. But again, this just concludes, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So let's just conclude then this morning with this last few verses from verse 7 to 13. The church of Laodicea. Now, not much left of Laodicea as it was, but it used to be an important, wealthy city, large Jewish population, like many other cities in the region. It had become a centre for Caesar worship and the worship of Aesculapius. As again, it was famous for having a medical school there in connection with his temple. We saw this previously, not the only place that was like this. History records that an earthquake had devastated the region in about 60 AD. But Laodicea had refused help from Rome in rebuilding the city, choose to rely on their own resources. They didn't need help. They were quite comfortable on their own, thank you very much. One historian says it this way, he says, It is frequently noted that Laodicea prided itself on three things. Firstly, financial wealth, an extensive textile industry, and a popular eye salve, which was exported around the world. Now it's interesting because those things were real at that time, and these are the things that Jesus draws on in the letter that they receive. But a poor water supply made Laodicea vulnerable to attack through siege. As a result, they became quite accommodating to any potential foe, choosing rather to negotiate and compromise instead of fight. If you knew you were going to be put in a position of siege if you don't give in, then it's much better to just kind of be friends to everybody. That was their thinking anyway. The Romans had constructed a six-mile aqueduct from the hot springs in Hierapolis, all the way down to Laodicea. Great idea, but the problem was, by the time the water had got there, 
it'll become lukewarm. I mean, I know if you have your drinks hot or whatever, but when you get a, a lukewarm cup of tea, it's kind of lost its edge, isn't it? Well, this was the same for them. Yeah, the water started off nice and hot from these hot springs, but by the time it got there, it was lukewarm. There was a second aqueduct that had been constructed that brought in lovely cold spring water from Coloss. Now, that again would have been good, but by the time it got there, with the heat of the sun, that was also lukewarm. Now, it's interesting because these things Jesus brings out in the letter to this church. Now, we're living at a time when the church today has become self-sufficient, just like Laodicea. The church today doesn't think it's in need of anything. It's also repeatedly given in to compromise and become lukewarm. I mean, how often have we heard the church give in to the voice of the world? You know, that we have to move with the times and so on. Be politically correct. Don't want to rock the boat or upset people. After all, we're supposed to be drawing people in, so let's not upset people. Let's just lay aside any rules and standards we have and then everybody's happy. That's, that's the way the church has gone, sadly. But now more than ever does the church need this eye salve that she can see things from Jesus' perspective. We see this in the letter brought out. It's generally agreed that this last church age began at the turn of the century and will continue until the time of the second coming. But this church will eventually be full of just apostates and so they will be the ones who will go off into tribulation. And it also means that this church will not therefore be raptured. The call still goes out to any individual who has ears to hear. So the church of Laodicea, the rule of the people is what the name means. And really it's suggested there that it seems to go from about 1900 AD right off up until the time of the tribulation, whenever that is. Certainly looking at the world today, not long. The dragnet is the final parable in Matthew chapter 13, which seems to depict this church. We have this reference we'll look at in a moment, that Jesus speaks of spewing this church out of his mouth. We'll come and look at that as we go through the text. Let's look at verse 14 and pick it up. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans writes, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. There's so much we could draw out of this. That Jesus chooses these titles for a reason. And he reminds them that he is the Amen. Effectively, he's the beginning and the end. There's a faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. How interesting it is that the Laodicean church, the church today, rejects God as creator. And yet this is the way that God, that Jesus, chooses to present himself to this church. He says, I know thy works. How fitting this is, given the historical application. That thou art neither cold nor hot. I wish that thou were cold or hot. And you know, the water that was coming into the city... It would have been great if it was hot coming from Hierapolis or from Colossae if it was nice and cold, but it was neither. And Jesus says to this church, you're not either, you're not good or bad in any respect. You know, you're not good because you're, you're cold, you're not good because you're hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor high, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Hasn't the, the church today become like that? It's so tepid. It doesn't stand for anything really, does it? You know, you see somebody on telly wearing a dog collar and you just cringe before they even speak. Because very seldom they ever say anything that's of substance. It's nearly always compromise. And very often it's heretical as well. 
David Guzik made this comment. He said, Has there been a greater curse upon the earth than empty religion? Is there any soul harder to reach than the one who has just enough of Jesus to think they have enough? Laodicea exemplifies empty religion. And tax collectors and harlots were more open to Jesus than scribes and Pharisees. That's the, the church that seems to exist in the days right now that we're living in. And really, we see some of the most graphic language in the Bible here in this verse. You know, but it's been said before that when a body detects poison in it, it expels it violently if necessary for the sake of the body. You know, if any of you have experienced food poisoning in the past, your body gets that out of the system as quickly as it possibly can. It's not pleasant. And Jesus is speaking here because this church is just so full of compromise. He says, because because they are lukewarm and either cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I believe that prior to the rapture, we're going to end up with a church that is washed in the water of the word. That's what Ephesians tells us. A bride preparing for her king to come. But out of that church will be got rid of all those that are not truly Jesus Christ. Those who have just been going along, who have been playing the game. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, or again, so typical of that church historically, but isn't it also of the church age in which we live right now? And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I mean, ministers of, of religion today, they go through Bible colleges where they sit and systematically the word is taken apart and they're told that it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean that. I think I may have shared before that I knew somebody, a minister of a church back in Kent. He said that at the time he was at Bible college, three people he knew committed suicide. A Bible college. Because they'd gone in there with this zeal and confidence in the word of God and it had all been eroded before them. You know, I've known people that have gone to Bible college and struggled because they've been told that this isn't true and that's not true. Well, again, the church today... It's, rich, it's wretched, it's miserable, poor, poor, blind and naked. It doesn't see the condition that it's truly in. Because it has rejected the word of God. Just as in the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, God spoke through Jeremiah to say to the church then, that they thought they had everything, but you have nothing because you've rejected the word of God. God speaks to the, the priest in Jeremiah's day and says, because they've rejected the word of the Lord, what wisdom is in them? In Lübeck Cathedral in Germany, there is this posted on the wall. Thus speaks Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me might and honour me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. So fitting for this church age of which we're Looking now, verse 18 carries on, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou may be rich, and white raiment, 
that thou may be clothed, and that thy shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thy eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Again, the three things they were known for. Jesus is offering them the spiritual equivalent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase them. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You see, right up until the end, there's this opportunity to turn. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And God makes clear in his work, in the book of Hebrews we're told, that those whom God loves, he chastens. If people go through chastening, it's because God wants them to turn to him. He wants them to realize and to see that he's a God who loves them desperately. Why is it that we chasten our children? It's because we love them. If they've done wrong. And then a verse that we're so familiar with. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. But notice the context has changed now. This is now anyone. This is if any man hear my voice. This doesn't seem to be just addressed to the church. It's got to the stage that the church seemingly has got deaf ears at this point. And so the cry goes out to anyone that has ears to hear. Anyone hear my voice. And open the door. It reminds me of the comments that Jesus made about those who were invited to the feast but didn't go. They came up with a whole bunch of excuses, you remember? Read about it in Luke's Gospel. And then Jesus says, well, just go and find anyone. Go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. I love that. I love that whole idea that we should compel people to come in. Not just, you know, well, I'm a Christian and, okay, just accept me as I am type thing. No, we should be compelling people. There really is an eternity at stake here. But we compel with that love. Because we have been so blessed and transformed by God's grace that we just want people to see. We told him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame. And I was sat down with my father in his throne. This great promise here. And a number of times we have in the New Testament this promise of sitting on thrones and ruling and reigning with Jesus. And we're given this promise for those that do overcome, for those that are willing to open the door to Jesus. This great promise. The promise given to an overcomer. His promised blessings. You know, it's interesting to note that Jesus is sat at the right hand of the Father now. And yet so often we hear of these visions of Jesus that people have seen. That Jesus came and visited them and so on and told them this, that and the other. But Jesus is sat at the right hand of the throne of the Father until that time that he comes back to receive his bride to himself. So be very careful that we don't get deceived by those things that are said. And again, remember that this church was told to be watchful. Sorry, not the, sorry, the church at Sardis were told to be watchful. That's the true of all these churches, that we should be ready, we should be waiting. We should be looking for the return of our Lord. Now, again, we've just gone through previously, looking at the parables in Matthew 13, the seven letters to the seven churches, the seven ages of the church, and also the history of the nation of Israel. All of these things just tie together and we see God's design and God's plan. just want to mention just quickly, we looked last time at the uh, church of Thyatira and how this woman is depicted and the leaven and so on and we see very much uh, speaking of the Catholic church in so many ways. 
But then we go on to the next church age, as it were, the next uh, church, yes, the church of uh, Sardis, representing, as I said, the Reformation church. Now, it's this, this parable of the, the hidden treasure, very much like this wonderful message of salvation by grace, that a man would give all he had to buy this treasure. Now, of course, it speaks of Christ giving all that he had to purchase us, but how true of those in the, the beginning of that time of the Reformation, like Martin Luther and others, that risked everything to get hold of this one pearl, this wonderful pearl, that said we are saved by grace, not by our works. And incidentally, just notice that the, the book that parallels that in terms of the, the churches that Paul writes to is the book of Romans, the book that tells us the just shall live by faith. The church of Philadelphia... The parable there is the pearl of great price. Because this pearl is there, it's a Gentile thing. It's not something that the Jews would want. It's not kosher to the Jews. It's a Gentile thing. It's this thing that's taken from its place. And it's formed, by the way, by this secretion, by this irritation. But it's taken from its place and it becomes an item of adornment. Well, isn't that true of the church, the true church of Jesus Christ? That we're formed by struggle, by trials, but ultimately the Gentile church will be taken and will become this item of adornment as we are given this privilege of becoming the bride of Christ. It's a wonderful picture in many of these that we could spend a lot longer expanding. I just encourage you to do your own study and go further in these things. Finally, the dragnet. In Matthew 13, the power of the dragnet, we find that this, this net is dragged and actually you get good and bad, but then the bad are cast away. And it's just the good that remain. Again, with all of these church ages, there's good, there's bad, there's things that we can learn from them, there's examples that can help us to understand. Just looking here, that power of the dragnet in Matthew 13 Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. Well, that's like the churches today. Which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels but cast the bad away. Well, again, remember the wheat and the tares, that the good are gathered into the barn. The wheat is gathered into the barn, a picture of the rapture, I believe. But the tares are gathered into bundles, which is exactly what we see going on today. Around the world, these churches gathered into bundles. If I remind you again of the church uh, represented by Israel's history, we get to that time of the division of the kingdom, where we have effectively the Catholic and the Protestant church, the time of the Reformation. But interestingly, just as it was in Jeremiah's day, where Israel were given this commendation, and Judah were condemned for not learning, well, so it's the same. The church of the Reformation should have learnt the mistakes from the Catholic Church, and yet they didn't. And they ended up actually bringing even more idolatry in places. And then we get to this stage of the judgment being foretold to Israel. The faithful were taken away to Babylon. God has said to Israel, don't worry, listen, this is of me, go, and I will provide for you, I'll protect you, and then you'll return again to this place. For those that wanted to stay, God warned that I will send upon them the sword, the famine, the pestilence. Doesn't this ring a bell? And we'll make them like vile figs, they cannot be eaten. You know, the church of Philadelphia are a church that are promised to escape the judgment that's coming, but they must be willing to let go and leave this world. And finally, 
We get to that time when those that chose to remain, those that wanted to, as it were, make this world their home, they stay. That speaks very much of the, the church of Laodicea. The false apostate church that thought they needed nothing. That were just lukewarm. That Jesus said he would spew them out of his mouth. And ultimately they will be consumed by that fire. Just as the parable of the dragnet. Just as the other parables allude to throughout. Interestingly enough as well, Jeremiah speaking of this, speaks of the fact that the, church, or the, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel at that time were saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace. He says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? I mean, just think of the things that go on with the established churches now under that heading of abominations. Things that God detests and yet now publicly displayed as if everybody should accept them. Isn't it funny how we should be tolerant of all of these things and yet we're not, people are not tolerant of our position. You know, tolerance works just one way in the way that society at large demands it must. If you're not tolerant, then you're considered these days an extremist. But of course, they've failed to see that they're being intolerant in saying those things. Again, those seven eras of history for Israel, the seven letters to the seven churches, the seven church ages, you see God's design through all of it. And ultimately, again, there's an eighth age for Israel. It's that age when they will be brought back into their land, where a temple will be built and the Messiah would teach from it. And it's the same for us. Those who are taken at the time of the rapture, the true church, will be, will be brought back at the time of the second coming. And Jesus will rebuild the temple and he will teach from it. And so these letters to these seven churches conclude, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. How applicable these things are for us today. To understand the lessons. And I would encourage you to just go back through chapter 2 and 3. I mean, I've tried to, I have focused very much on the prophetic elements of these things. But there are personal applications, things that the Lord would have to say to each of you. Remember again what the first letter says, letter to Ephesus, about those that lose their first love. I mean, today again, being Valentine's Day, a day that the world tries to celebrate love. But have you forgotten your first love? You know, you remember what it's like when you fell in love? Joe and I were speaking recently of someone we know who has gone on the love diet. It's the best diet of all. Works better than any other diet known to man. But when you get a partner, when you get married, you kind of let yourself go a little, don't you? It doesn't matter quite so much. But you know, really the, the desire to please your spouse, the one you're with, should never wane, should never fade. And so often we allow things of this world to come in between us and Christ. We get so familiar and used to, it should always be fresh. Our love for Jesus should never, ever be tired. Again, each one of these letters, so many lessons, I encourage you, please, just go read them again and see what the Lord would speak to you personally from these things. Next week we'll pick it up and we move into heaven. In chapter 4 and chapter 5. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. And that, Father, your word tells us of itself it will bring division. Father, thank you for choosing those churches that you chose to write those letters to. To reveal the things that you have revealed to us. Lord, that we should be a people that are watching, that are waiting. We should never be complacent. 
And Father, we should certainly never be lukewarm in our love for you or in our relationship. And so, Lord, please rekindle by your Holy Spirit in our lives this day a deeper and greater love for you. And Father, as we get ready for the rapture, as we get ready to be taken out of this world, Lord, help us not to hold on to the things of this life, but Lord, to let go of those things and to hold on to the things that really matter. And Lord, that is our relationship with you, our love for you, our fellowship with each other. Father, we thank you for these things. Just impress them upon our hearts and minds, we ask, as we go from here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.